Welcome to Coming from Left Field, where we have conversations about politics, books, and current events with your host, Greg Gottles and Pat Cummings. There is no doubt that Jeff Bezos has created an unstoppable capitalist Godzilla, devastating retail businesses, paying very little or no taxes, and pitting states against each other in the form of huge subsidies. But particular disdain should be reserved for the way he treats his warehouse employees and suppresses union activity. How would a unionized warehouse impact my Amazon Prime? Should we care how the sausage is made? Let's discuss. Hello, everybody. Welcome to our podcast. Greg and Haas, glad to have you uh, visit with this. This is going to be exciting, talking about Amazon and unions and such. And I think what we need to do is get the name situation squared away. Your name is actually Richard Hollidell. Correct. Uh, but... Um, I really didn't even know that was your name until maybe five years after I met you because uh, we met in college and you were um, paying your way through college as an offensive guard playing for Eastern Illinois University and you're a really big man and you every you were named Haas based of the Ponderosa, the Gunsmoke with uh, yeah. the a Dan Walker character. Yeah, Anza, right. I think it was. And for some reason, my my two older brothers, who were identified as those characters, uh, my oldest brother Chuck was tall, taller than me, dark haired. Uh, the next oldest was uh, my brother Kurt, who you do know, uh, and he was the smallest of the three of us, and he was by far the best looking. <laughs> uh, and uh, I used to drive my father crazy because uh, ladies would be calling Kurt at 10 o'clock at night. Uh, and uh, But anyway, so that was how that started. It was Adam and Little Joe and Hoss, and uh, they would take our last name and convert it to Cartwhittle and Whole Right. And, uh, a little, little bit. Yeah, yeah. And eventually, all of my two older brothers outgrew it, and for some reason, I did not. Okay, so you're host, you're host for us uh, some of the time here. Yeah. And I really want you on this podcast because you have such good uh, background and experience regarding what we're talking about, which is both Amazon and their business model and unions. And you were in the crosshairs of Amazon through your publishing uh, work for years. But you also have this really rich background of union experience, both with you yourself as a teamster and working and your your brothers and your dad and your mother. So tell me a little bit about your background with the uh, publishing. I worked for a small to mid-sized publisher based in Champaign for about 26 years. Uh, all of it in sales and most of it in sales management. Uh, my last 12 years, I was the director of consumer sales, which for our publishing company was not sales direct to consumers. It was sales to people that uh, sold to consumers uh, or sold to distributors that uh, sold to retailers. So um, that, you know, that was my background. And uh, in the late 90s, 90s I dealt uh, with Amazon 
uh, selling to them. I uh, was also part of a decision late in the 90s to cut Amazon off. off. We stopped supplying them for a while and referred them to distributors because their business practices weren't that good. And, and part of that, I think, was Amazon growing pains. And then uh, around uh, 2002, we went back to dealing with them on a direct basis, shipping directly to Amazon warehouses. And uh, our company, as with all other publishing companies, ended up seeing Amazon become uh, a dominant outlet to consumers. Right. It's now about 70 to 80 percent of all book sales. And um, and, you know, and that's only a small percentage of what their total market is. But I, I remember having conversations with you on the phone. You were just fit to be tied about their their very predatory business model and how they would um, abuse the boutique publishers. And um, anyway, no love well, lost and, there. And I, and I think you described it very diplomatically when you mentioned my conversations. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure the way they described it was a lot closer to Al Swearingen on Deadwood. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, today's today's conversation centers around the uh, Bessemer Union vote, which is going to be coming up uh, in the end of this month, and also the. To a certain extent, the model, the business model of Amazon and how that's changing the landscape of our, our retail and, and, and the, the third thing I, I think that we should hit on is the union um, movement uh, and how Amazon is handling that, why they're so afraid about that, and maybe some general background about you know, why unions have declined from one out of five workers to one out of 10 workers in a matter of a couple of decades and and what, what we can do about that. So does that seem like a good place to start? Sure. Good. Greg, do you know much about the Bessemer union movements historically and what's gone on down in Alabama with... Uh, the steel workers, or do you have any yeah, experience coal, with coal that? Mines in, coal mines and steel mills in Alabama. People think of Alabama as being rural, but in fact, uh, it, it is, has been a uh, resource source for, for uh, coal. And of course, because of the proximity of coal uh, to, to steel making. So there's been a lot of industrialization, more than people think in, uh, in Alabama. And I think you're referencing the uh, the activities of the old CIO union, Mine Mill Smelter, which in Bessemer had uh, organized, uh, attempted to organize workers. And of course their union model is radic was radically different from the modern union model. Their model was one of uh, biracialism. So they were one of the few unions to go to the South and really tackle in that era, segregation, insist upon the unions being organized in an integrated fashion. And uh, they were democratic unions, which is uh, somewhat foreign to what unions are today. And they were social unions in the sense that they were involved in the entire community. So on their agenda was integrationism as much as it was organizing workers and collecting dues. And they're, 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 they were an or, a union that uh, sprung out of the old IWW and uh, the old uh, uh, Western miners. And they were a more radical version of uh, of, of, of a, of a um, 
mine, mine, miners union today. And uh, I was happy to say my, my uncle was, a, uh, was an organizer and a leader in mine mill smelter in New Mexico. That was, their strength wasn't really in the uh, Southwest but they did organize in Alabama because no one else wanted to. But they brought their model there and they met some success. And I think a lot of the people that are organizing today around Bessemer and around Amazon are drawing on the fact that two or three generations ago, there was that tradition and it was a very strong union tradition. And uh, that, that's why they hope that they can make some inroads in the South and in that particular setting. And, and Haas, you, you, with your professional career, you went down to Alabama, didn't you? And have you been to Bessemer? Have you um, done some business down there? One of the accounts I called on uh, was uh, Amer the American Wholesale Book Company, who also operated the Books a Million chain, located primarily in the south, southeast, and the near southwest. Uh, and they were located in Irondale, which is just outside of Bessemer. And you could see the industrial background of Bessemer and Irondale when you traveled into their facility every day. And it was, it was rough. I mean, you, you could see that rust belt decline there just as much as you would see it if you drove through Gary, Indiana. So Greg, you said it was uh, interracial union, I don't know if that's the correct term, but black and white together on equal standing. This is in Alabama yes, in the 30s. Yes, that's yes. that's a little yes. bit off, off plum, isn't it, compared to what we know about the South? I said the, the traditional conservative union movement had a long tradition of organizing uh, separate locals and not antagonizing or not tackling the segregation in the South in that era. And so these new CIO unions like uh, Mine Mill Smelter, they had a different approach and they insisted upon uh, not respecting those institutions in the South and organizing workers along an industrial basis. And so they had, um, they elected officials who were black and white, which was very radical for the South. You know, and in reality, the, the most integrated institutions in America in the post-Civil War era probably were the CIO unions in the 30s and 40s because they were thoroughly integrated. Auto workers, the steel workers, which were less radical than the uh, mine mill smelter, but also was a CIO organized union. Uh, communists were uh, critical in their organization as they were with the auto workers, as they were with the other CIO unions, United Electrical Workers, which was the third largest CIO union. So um, there, was a, there was a social movement that was more than just a union movement, more than just a dues collecting business union approach. And I think that's why Bessemer presents a real opportunity for union organizing with Amazon. So the next podcast we're gonna be doing in a week or two is with uh, um, a fellow that wrote a book about uh, the auto industry and the impact of the Communist Party in the auto industry. Was this a, did this have any communist influence in the union development here in the Northwest? Did, did, did Bessemer? Did yeah. The, well, in fact, there's a good book. Uh, uh, Hosea Hudson has a biography. He was a, a, uh, agricultural worker, a sharecropper in the South, and he organized sharecroppers. He was a, he was a communist. 
the communists were involved in the labor organizing throughout the South, wherever it was in the in Gastonia and the and uh, the uh, mills, the uh, clothing mills. And so, yeah, they, they were a big part of that that element. And of course, they informed that also informed the civil rights movement. A lot of the folks that were in the civil rights movement in the South were either connected with or exposed to or involved and engaged with uh, the Communist Party uh, to some extent. It's kind of a, thanks to McCarthyism, it's a kind of forgotten history. It's, it's being rediscovered today, especially with younger people who are learning about the labor movement in its entirety. And so, for example, among my, my friends and comrades, there's a new interest, including this book we're talking about on the auto workers, in that legacy. They want to know about it. They, they want a continuous history not a bifurcated one that makes the auto workers begin with the Ruther brothers, which is just nonsense. Right. It begins with the steel workers when uh, uh, in the 50s with I.W. Abel and McDonald, which is nonsense. They want to know the real history of these things. And similarly, there are African-American scholars, young ones who are now exploring the role of the Communist Party in organizing in the South with Blacks, with African-Americans, and African-Americans who are communists and how they played a role in this whole these whole developments. Yeah. Well, my my union background is limited. Um, after I graduated from college, I spent uh, all summer and winter working as a union laborer in Illinois, puddling concrete out in the sleet and snow. And and frankly, I was not very good at it. Uh, that's <laughs> what precipitated me going back to college and going to graduate school. Absolutely. But I mean, at that time, I was, this is 1973, I was making $7.50 an hour, which is equivalent to 40 some bucks an hour, had medical benefits, had, you know, <laughs> all of the people that I worked with, the laborers I worked with were, you know, middle class, solidly middle class. Uh, so I'm not a very good union guy because I frankly couldn't cut it. And I'm, I'm being honest about that. It was just, uh, but Haas, tell me a little bit about your, your family background, your union background. It's a little more extensive than my little uh, soft hand background. So. Uh, well, I had, uh, I myself had a couple of short stints as a union member. First, I was uh, employed by the Cook County Forest Preserve District when I was 17. Uh, that was between my senior year in high school and, uh, you know, starting my freshman year at Eastern. Uh, and I think that would have been AFSCME, uh, wow. the uh, Government Workers Union. Uh, and then I spent four summers hauling uh, trash uh, in curb service situations for a private solid waster who employed Teamsters. So I was a Teamster. And I made a living man's wage over the summer. And between my football scholarship and my wages as a teamster, I went through four years of school and never borrowed a dime and was never in debt. I mean, it was, uh, it was good. It worked extremely hard, but uh, you were well paid for it. And my experience with my coworkers was similar to you when you puddled concrete in that uh, I worked with guys that... Uh, drove decent cars, most of them that were old enough uh, to have a wife and kids owned a home. You could call them uh, upper working class existence. So anyway, you were saying that uh, you, they were solidly middle class and, uh, and, and your, your union uh, experience was through south part of Chicago, the suburbs, Tinley Park, yeah. that area. Yeah, Tinley Park, Harvey, Robbins, uh, 
uh, as far south as Finley Park, Lothian, Markham, Kingston Green. Uh, but it was a great summer job. It was a good workout. You worked really hard. And then my job working for the Cook County Forest Preserve Department, which I know I've shared with you, was kind of um, a different experience. Uh, my father was a German immigrant. He was very much a traditional father model. It was, uh, uh, you know, we started working in the, our parents' tavern when we were all about five and sorting bottles on the weekends. And there was a high work ethic uh, instilled. And um, when I started working for the Forest Preserve District uh, doing park maintenance, uh, I tried to do what I knew my father would expect of me, which is to show up on time, give them eight for eight. Uh, and um, I was there for two weeks and uh, I got a uh, call into the office from the site superintendent. Great guy, good good guy, good to me. But uh, he waves me on in and he says, uh, Richard, uh, we have a problem. You need to come here and you need to sit down and we need to talk. And my heart's in my boots uh, <laughs> because I could just see how this was going to play with Helmuth back home. And uh, so he, he looks me in the face. And uh, again, he was a kindly guy, nice guy. But he goes, you know, Richard, we only have so much work to go around in a week. And if you use it up on Tuesday, by Tuesday, you know, we don't have much left. So uh, you need you need to to take care of the, the task you're given in the morning. And if you're done, you take your naps at the back of the park where people can't see you, okay? I don't want anybody to hurt their back on this job. We don't have people getting hernias here. Uh, so just Come be mindful on. and take it easy. Uh, so that was, uh, those are both union experiences, but one of course was working for Cook County and the other was a private solid waster and, and uh, Again, and your your brother it was a, a, a remarkable union fellow. What did he start as a carpenter and was a supervisor and built hospitals and? Yeah, he did some very tricky work for uh, one of the largest construction companies in Cook County. Uh, very well thought of, and he has the ability to compare what it was like to work as a non-union carpenter as well as a union carpenter, and. Uh, he went ahead and made the shift to the union, uh, to the Carpenters Union in Chicago to uh, pick up benefits, essentially. He was actually paid more per hour with the small private company he worked for, uh, but they could not offer the suite of benefits. They did not have health insurance. Uh, they didn't offer a pension. And when he was working for them, there was no such thing as a 401k or IRA. So he made the shift and, uh, had a difficult transition in the early years because the people he worked for were very high performance. They paid very well. It was two of I, two U of I uh, engineering grads that ran the, con the country and they specialized in concrete, a lot of it tricky work. And uh, Kurt worked very hard at it uh, and it was very well paid. Uh, but again, they couldn't offer in the suite of benefits and so he went to the, the construction company in Chicago that was union, and he said it was difficult because uh, the uh, quality of work was comparable, but the pace of work was not. These were his exact words. My easiest day working for Sapanzik uh, was harder than my hardest day working for 
I guess I can say the company name, it was Pepper Construction, very mm-hmm. well known. And he had a very high regard for Pepper. It was a very good company. And he appreciated being a union, but he said there, the, the uh, uh, demands of the job were certainly lighter at uh, Pepper. Uh, but he also said they had great safety consciousness and uh, that uh, he had a life after finishing his career that he could not have had had he stayed as a non-union department. Right. Right. I, re- I remember him, I, I w- w- was visiting you in Illinois a couple of years ago and Kurt was there and we were by your pool and, and I was saying, how, how do you physically do this? You know, how do you, this is hard work. And yeah. I remember him saying, well, when you're in the, at that time he was in the union, we're in the union, the older people are kind of taken care of by the younger people a little bit. If someone needs to run and get something out of a truck or something, it's just it's 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 just common knowledge that if that person is up in their their sixties or you know fifties and sixties, there's a, a kind of a cooperative brotherhood that's that's you know, a good part of the union. But it's not always at at, at the expense of efficiency, is it? Well, no. Uh, and the other thing that happens, supposedly, if you are good at your craft, you get more skills, and it's the skill side that becomes more important to your employer and to the guys you work with. Uh, uh, Kurt's last 10 years or so as a carpenter, maybe even more, a lot of his work was play out, was uh, layout work. He would take blueprints home with him, and he would pre-position walls and mechanicals, uh, and he would be directing others, and he interacted with subcontractors. You know, he would deal with the electricians. He was a carpenter's foreman, but in many ways, he functioned like a superintendent, a job superintendent. And if you're good at your craft, you move into those positions. You're still union. He refused an offer to move into management because he wanted to stay with the union. He liked working with his hands. He liked direct contact with uh, the product they were producing. Uh, he also was a very non-political person, very non-political. And so he made the move up uh, in responsibilities and other guys specialized. Uh, as you get up in years and you're a better trim carpenter, you, you have the experience and the hand-eye skills uh, to work uh, with hanging doors, uh, putting in cabinets, adjusting doors, putting in panic bars. All those things are things that aren't as physically demanding and you move up there. And uh, Atlas Refuse Disposal, the company I work for summers uh, in the south suburbs, uh, they did something similar within the Teamsters Union. You started out as a helper on the back of a truck and you might load 16 tons of garbage a day. You know, and it was all by hand. You were, you were, you were humping uh, cans to the back of a truck and uh, the guy that had been there longer was a driver and he'd come out and help but uh, mostly the, the trash was on your on your back and then those guys if they stuck around long enough they would move into container rocks so as you aged you mo- moved up and, you know they didn't have any 50 year olds doing curb service uh-huh. and they were all still remained in the union but they kind of moved up to easier jobs so going back to so that's Amazon. the that's the classic. Go ahead, Greg. That's uh, that's the classic seniority system. That uh, mm-hmm. in the crafts, of course, it's uh, well oiled. Uh, but even industrial unions, they fought hard to emulate that uh, seniority system. 
so that the job descriptions uh, available to people as they had more and more time in the job, which would also usually coincide with your age, became available to you. So uh, seniority systems uh, are still there in place, but they're not the way they were when the unions were really uh, fighting for them because they enable people to be 55, 65 years old and have the cush jobs. I mean, they're not really cush, but they're the jobs that are there and have to be filled and they ought to be filled by people who've, who deserve them. And, and the seniority system allowed that to happen. And, and uh, bringing us back to Amazon, you can see in Amazon's employment model why that would be antithetical to them because they don't want the older worker. They want somebody that can move the packages. Uh, they rely on high level uh, coding, software development, engineering, uh, and, and a huge labor base of people that are probably never gonna get seniority. Right. Uh, well, that's, that's also UPS. I mean, uh, it doesn't begin with Amazon. UPS for generations now has been that model, essentially, young people who can jump around in their shorts, get off that, that truck, run up to your house, drop the material off. And they, you know, I, when I worked, I used to uh, get on these guys because they would have a helper who was a time study person with UPS, studying how he can make this job more efficient rather than helping the person. I'd say, so you're gonna stand there and time this guy while he gets off the, the, the truck and delivers in his building to five different locations. He was gonna stand there, but I couldn't fathom that, but that's the way it worked. And that's the model that Amazon developed. I mean, they didn't develop it, they adopted it from UPS and other uh, delivery systems. You know, our, 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 our postal service could have done this, could have done it in the context of a strong union system, could have done it in the context of uh, 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 government ownership and jobs that were safe, secure, and didn't have the pressures of making profit the way UPS, Amazon, FedEx, and the rest do. But the federal government forbade our, our, uh, our Postal Service from competing with these companies, right. including Amazon. Of course, Trump's big complaint about Amazon was that uh, it was taking advantage of all these rural deliveries through the Postal Service and, and, and wouldn't make their own deliveries because nobody else would deliver for that price their postal service right it's so parasitic they, capitalism it, it, if you want an effective capitalist system you don't want to be burdened with many of the inefficiencies built cost. into the into the into the model you know you want to be I able call to get it rid cost. Of you call it efficiency i call it cost you want to get rid of older people you want to be able to get rid of people with very little provocation um you know, you want to you want to go to communities where there's a great um, uh, need for employment, so you have, you know, people wanting to work for little or nothing. So, so, yeah. Let Let's get back to uh, one of your favorite uh, subjects, Haas, about just what a despicable, horrible person Jeff Bezos is. And um, and I, when I was. When I was looking at this uh, Bessemer uh, situation, what struck me is that the, the distribution center went in in the spring and then by summer people were saying, hey, you know, we've had it here. So it, it, it wasn't as if this thing had been running for a couple of years. 
was a very short period of time, 10 hour work days with two 15 minute bathroom breaks in 10 hours? Uh, I think it was 30 minutes. I was reading some of the links you sent and listening to, uh, uh, in fact, I was listening to a podcast and they said two 30 minutes and uh, 10 hours uh, and paced work, monitored work pace. Oh, and uh, the, you know, the time on task, everything being monitored. I think one yeah. of the articles I sent of their anti-union activities of Bessemer is 85% black employees. Most of their management is white, but they brought in these highly paid union consultants that were paid, what, $3,000 a day? $200 a day for, for uh, consultants. And that they would, work, they would work individually with the employees trying to convince them how horrible the, the union was. Uh, mandatory classes mandatory, sometimes several hour classes uh, where they would go through how problematic the union was. Uh, and any dissent within those classes, they would be removed from, you know, people would be removed from the classes. Whole Foods even was using infrared monitoring to ensure that they could capture whether or not people were gathering together for fear that they would be talking about union. I mean, that's right out of, that's kind of China stuff, isn't it? Uh, oh, yeah, that's uh, 1984. <laughs> right. Big brother, the big brother is watching you. So this, they do not want a union and they're spending a heck of a lot of money and effort to stop that uh, because they know it would it would affect their their business model you know? uh, um, unfortunately in addition to all the other limitations i have is the one where i can't read minds i'm not exactly sure how jeff bezos looks at his world and looks at his business i can tell you from the outside from selling to him and having to negotiate with the Amazon organization that there is a commitment there to relentless consumer facing excellence that is exceedingly rare. And it's amazing to see anyone have that kind of focus. And that's part of where his power and his success comes from. Collusion from other places, other major actors, but, but when it comes to his success with consumers, it, that, um, the detail which gets managed, the face that's put, put forward, the comprehensive nature of how Amazon deals with consumers and satisfies consumers is awe-inspiring. It also scares the crap out of me, but it is, it is amazing. And I don't know whether that is an expression of Bezos's personality, whether he's extremely driven and uh, extremely focused and demands control and, uh, and acceding to union organization means that he now has to negotiate internally, which uh, from what I've read is not his strong suit, uh, or whether it's simply profit. Mm -hmm. I, uh, it, to me, it, it, his behaviors speak to a personal commitment to this kind of effort. Uh, more than profit, because my guess is he could pay more and still make plenty. 
Uh, so I, I think of it as maybe a control issue, um, but I'm not a mind reader. I don't know. I, yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. I, I um, bought something that I could have bought on Amazon, but I decided I bought it right from the manufacturer, a small electric heater, and it didn't quite work. It was the wrong unit. And man, I, I, I spent hours on the phone. You need to have this. You need this return thing. You need to put it in this box. It has to be. Whereas if I buy something from Amazon and want to return it, I, I go online, it prints a label, I go in, they scan and I'm done. I, I'm, I'm out, of, out of there in just, you know, minutes. So that kind of efficiency, I think, is, in fact, uh, uh, something that should be lauded with, with, with the Amazon. And um, well, with uh, what, um, amongst other things, what uh, drives me uh, to distraction about the Amazon situation is that he has earned his market share. He's got market share, but what he also does, what Amazon also does, is it really squashes margins from their suppliers in places where it doesn't have to be squashed. He can maintain his margins and still have a preeminent position in the marketplace on all kinds of products without discounting them as deeply as he does. Uh, he is certainly a value extractor not a value enhancer. The guy doesn't really create value, he extracts it. It's, it's almost a parasitic organization. As magnificent as its organization and execution is, he extracts value mostly created by other people. And that, I guess, irritates me a bit. And that gets to one of your favorite points, uh, Greg, which is, um, I said in my introduction that Bezos has created this unstoppable capitalist Godzilla. And, uh, you know, he, it is an efficient uh, mechanism for uh, extracting wealth from labor, uh, consolidating, consolidating wealth. And according to that brand new book that's out that I haven't read yet, uh, called Fulfillment, literally recarving the geographic map of the United States with those areas with high value jobs, high-tech jobs, the Seattle's and the Washington DC's, and then these small communities with these fulfillment cities that are part of no man land, you know, that are these, these deserts of exploitation. Um, I, is that gonna be what kills this, Greg? Do you think it's the goose that, you know, killing the goose that laid the golden egg? I, Oh, guys. That, that, that kind of consolidated greed is eventually going to be the downfall? What do you think? I don't think it's greed. Guys, I, I, I think this is just uh, capitalism on a larger scale. I mean, I don't, I, the idea of, uh, of uh, anti-union drives involving consultants, involving lawyers, involving spying, involving uh, finks and infiltrators is as old as capitalism. And certainly, uh, I remember I tried to get a job as a SEIU organizer once, and uh, that's 40 years ago, and um, 35 years ago. And the, the, what you learned then was that's the way uh, the boss operates. The boss operates that way. It's nothing new. It's perhaps on a bigger scale. The question of the efficiency, so-called efficiencies, well, they're a factor of monopolization. 
You can squeeze your supplier, you can squeeze your workers, you can squeeze everybody you do business with because you're so damn big and you command so much of the marketplace, so much of, and that's just monopoly capitalism. That's not new. We can go back for, for generations and find that. So I don't find much new in Jeff Bezos. I don't find it as a extraordinary greed. I, I just think he's created a, uh, in many ways, admirable capitalist enterprise that does what capitalists do far better than the competitors do it. So it's and not I think a people that defend people that defend capitalism have to reckon with that reality. Okay, if you're against Jeff Bezos and you're against where Amazon is today in the marketplace, then it's just an extension of what capitalism has done for a hundred years. I mean, Lenin wrote a book called Imperialism in 1916. And he said, this new era of capitalism is one of concentration of cartels of monopolies. It's one of the rise of finance capital. So one of the growth of uh, investment around the world. And we've seen all these stages occur in just that fashion. And then at the end game where we find ourselves in time, we have writers saying, oh my God, what do we have here? Well, you have the evolution of capitalism. And in a lot of ways, Amazon is a model for a socialist distribution system. It monopolizes the marketplace. And in terms of books, I know Haas knows more than I know about the book publishing, but I do know that more and more there's just-in-time publishing. In other words, an order comes from me to Amazon. It goes to someone who actually makes the book and then sends it out. It's not like there's a warehouse filled with books in many cases. So we're in a situation where this is the perfect model for a socialist planned economy. And who's giving it to us? Jeff Bezos is, and technologies are giving us to us, but it's not in the service of the people, it's in the service of capital and the investors and Jeff Bezos. And so, yeah, I'm all, I mean, I, I hope we win this Bessemer battle, but I gotta tell you this behemoth, this capitalist behemoth is the wave of today and the future if we don't think in a bigger terms. So, so I hear you both saying that we're probably it's uh, if we're blaming Bezos, it's sort of a look over here, look over here. It's a distraction from the bigger system of not being able to regulate and control what inevitably is going to be, as Pickard says, a consolidation of wealth going to fewer and fewer and fewer people. Here, here, here's a fun fact for you. 2014, the company sold $2 billion worth of goods in Illinois and $1 billion in Missouri without employing a single person in either state. So there you go. That, that, that works, doesn't it? You know, to, to have that much sales, to destroy that many brick and mortars, to have that, and not to have one employee in the state. That, that, that works, right? It's, uh... I, I, I know you're being facetious here, and of course, it, it worked for uh, Bezos wonderfully. Uh, and for whoever it was that he squeezed, or you know, for whatever activities he decided to monetize to make it possible for the Illinois state le legislature to ignore that situation, uh, you know, I'm sure it worked for them. Uh, yeah, growing up in Cook County tends to make me a bit cynical. So I'm sure that there were some 
I mean, my assumption is that there was probably some incentive for leaving Amazon alone, even though it, you know, for most of those years, obviously they didn't have a warehouse here. They weren't employing people here. Uh, but, you know, those situations where you have a monopoly, where you have someone that is clearly undercutting suppliers, undercutting competitors, uh, selling at a loss, which he's done, um, you know, that's a case where somebody akin to Teddy Roosevelt would need to emerge and would need to intervene. Uh, and I don't see that person on the horizon, but I tend to agree with Greg that, uh, you know, without regulation, the, the big just gets bigger. You know, I was, uh, for years, I had hoped that Amazon's leadership would find other habits, that they would find drugs or mistresses or something to distract them from the business of supplying consumers. But that really hasn't happened. And this behemoth just keeps rolling and getting better at what it does. And when that happens, just like in the, at the end of the Gilded Age, somebody, a reformer had to emerge and you had to have an antitrust act, you had to bust up Standard Oil, you, you had to have intervention from a greater power. And uh, I, I don't see a change coming any other way. Yeah, yeah. Well, just for, just for uh, giggles, I uh, looked at two maps uh, the map of the right to work states, about, I don't know how many there are, 20, 25, ha more than half the, uh, the states are right to work. And then the map of election in the states that voted for Trump. And within the exception of just a couple of states, the maps just fit right on top of each other, you know. And I don't get that. I, I just don't get that because it's been through Kansas and Missouri and you know the populist movement. These were the states that were the most radical, if you will, in being independent, being against the railroads, being against the standard oil and and how they have now morphed into this political, affiliation with the Chamber of Commerce that is, you know, it's kind of screwing them, you know, what's the matter with Kansas? They, they're, they're supporting these politicians that are against their interest. And I, I guess that's why I'm a little excited about the Alabama thing that, you know, maybe, maybe the worm will turn. I don't know. Pat, let me just remind you, we've done a podcast about populism. And, and the instigation for those changes in that era was a, a party, a political party, people's party, a populist party, which of course had its thunder stolen by the Democrats, but nonetheless, it was the force outside of the two-party system that pushed these changes and resulted in some reforms and some regulation. And uh, so if that's your model, you know, we, we talked about it before and we find it an attractive model. How can that be done a hundred years later, over a hundred years later with a two part, an entrenched two party system? And as Lenin said in 1916, monopoly capitalism will become state monopoly capitalism in which the monopolies own the state. And I think we can see that happening in America. We can see that in terms of 
what the two parties, the two parties are owned by corporate America. So without another party, how can we break that stranglehold? We, the only example we have of a populist party was one in which a formation was created outside of the two-party system to attack these questions. I don't see it in, in a two-party system. Hmm. I don't know. Boss, what do you, I mean, I, I don't see it in a two-party system. How can that happen? when the two parties are essentially owned by these monopolies. Look at the um, Democratic Party, you know, the under Pelosi. And it, it, to me, it's quite obvious they've given up on the union worker. They've given up on manufacturing. They're consolidating their power with, you know, banking and with um, finance and such. I, that article you sent me, Greg, about the the percentage of Obama era people now re-entering the Biden administration where they have to disclose their wealth. Oh my <laughs> God, oh my God, these people made millions and millions and millions, not as lobbyists, they can't be lobbyists, so they make them consultants. You know, is Susan Rice really that bright that she knows more about communication than anybody else? No, she's selling government. She's selling government. Yeah, access. And that I think is, the more I'm trying to get my mind around this Trump thing and why so many people voted for him is because he's a, you know, he at least said the right things about that. You know, he, he, Call it a swamp, and uh, you know, the lack swamp of a better term, and, and trying trying to get manufacturers to stay in the United States. It didn't work, but at least he said something. Um, and well, I don't know. Maybe uh, maybe I'm Biden. Um, you know, came out with the union statement. That's you know, that's better than Obama, which was talking about how wonderful Amazon was in Tennessee. Well, I, I was encouraged. I saw today that uh, the Biden administration uh, is talking about a $2 trillion investment uh, infrastructure, you know, actual money placed into the U.S. economy to create some goods, whether it's interstate travel, whether it's fixing up our bridges, whatever. It's, there's a host of things they're looking at, but that would be a welcome thing and certainly a step forward. But the problem is it doesn't address inequality. And if it's done the way that these other stimulus programs have been done, it actually increases it because rather than being like in the FDR era, where you create a CCC camp, government runs it. You create a WPA, government runs it. It has to be funneled in this era through corporations. So it ends up by the time it trickles through, it does some good, yes but it all then goes back into that corporation. I remember when the Obama stimulus came out and they talked about this infrastructure program, all of it was funneled through construction companies and studies were done that showed that by the time it got to fixing the bridge, the whole, the, the, the construction corporation had sucked all this money out of it. And that's not the way to do it. But, but, but again, I'm encouraged that he's talking about some some infrastructure changes, but we live at a time where. Yeah. That's the way it goes. It goes through corporations. Yeah. 
public-private partnerships. That's that's the slogan, and I don't think they work. I think they're a disaster. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. The the assault ban today. That's surprising. I, he's he's surprising me. I you know, I mean, for being a a zombie that's a, a run by the socialist of AOC and Bernie, according to Fox News, uh, that's just an empty shell and a all-timer rattled. Uh, uh, empty person that's being manipulated by the socialist it, it surprises me so anyway well good well listen guys thanks so much this was fun i i i think that we'll we what what, what we need to do now is have predictions about uh whether or not the bessemer vote's going to go through or not and i was going to cheat and do two of them where we say that we all agreed and then we all disagreed and then i would just edit in the one that uh but i won't yeah. i won't I, was I like gonna, that. I was going to cheat. I vote for that. <laughs> I vote for that, Pat. That's a good idea. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I, I guess up to a week ago, I would have said absolutely not. But I'm just wondering if there are other features at play here with, um, you know, the kind of the, the politics of the inequity. And uh, if, if it can happen in Alabama, it'll happen anywhere. So I don't know. I'm gonna, say, yeah. I'm, gonna, I'm gonna say it's going to it's going to pass just because I want it to pass, not because I really think it'll pass. So that's my thought. So we'll see. Well, that, that, that way you can cover both your bases and look smart either way. That that <laughs> yeah yeah that's right that that's right. I I can. My, my grandson works. Uh, my grandson works for Amazon in North Carolina in a warehouse. So I'm with you, Pat. I I. Uh, I'm going to go with my uh, hope over my uh, over intellect. Right. You're so not going to put I'll money down hope. on it. So anyway. Yeah. So Greg, uh, what, uh, what does your grandson say about working at Amazon? Well, he has no work experience. One thing it is doing, it's motivating him to do what his mother wanted him to do all along, and that's go back to school. <laughs> so that's a good thing. Yeah. But he doesn't complain about it a lot. It's the only work experience he knows. But what he tells me about his, um, how much he has to do in a given period of time and how he has this electronic thing that tells him to go everywhere and how they're, they're punished if they pick the wrong item. I mean, we never worked like that. I mean, my work experience like yours, Hoss, is was a good one. I worked hard, yeah. but I didn't have somebody beating up on me or watching everything I did. I mean, I had a chance to go have a smoke or something, but they don't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hmm, that's good. Okay, guys, thanks. This was fun. And thank you, Haas, for uh, hanging out with us for a little bit of time today. This is good. And I enjoyed our conversation and learned a little. And off we go. Okay. Thanks, Pat.